Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. I want you to start uh, this morning in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to bounce around a little bit, which I'm not totally at ease with doing, but it's kind of the direction that uh, I was led in as I was preparing for our discussion today. So let me... Let me make an observation, okay? And I, I don't mean this to be critical. I don't mean this to be condemning. I don't mean this to make you feel heavy about your life and about history in your life, okay? I mean this just as a simple statement that I believe is accurate, okay? I believe that we live in a culture that has a decreasing appreciation of marriage, okay? I believe we live in a culture that has a depreciation for the incredible value of marriage as intended by God. And I want to point to a couple trends. One of them is this. The divorce rate for a number of years has hovered at around 50%. Okay, meaning that 50% of marriages tend to at some level fall apart. Okay, now that is not to say that every person who has been divorced is contributing to the trend of the destruction of marriage or the devaluing of it, okay? But those that pursue it and break without God-given standards, without God-given exceptions, I think at some level we contribute to this decline in the value of marriage. Another fascinating statistic is this. The decrease in the number of adults who are married, okay, tells us something about the value of marriage. In 1960... 72% of adults were married. In 2010, that number had dropped to 51% of adults. Okay, 71% of adults married in the 60s to 2010, 70 or 51%. Cohabitation rate in America. In 2010, the cohabitation rate was 60%. In 1960, it was 3 to 4%. Okay, that's a, just about a 17-fold increase. All right, in what? In a suspicion about marriage that leads to testing, dipping one's toe in the water, not fully committed. Okay? That's another, just another trend that is contributing to this devaluing, kind of letting go of the preciousness of this gift that God has given us. Burst to unmarried couples. In 1964, 6%. In 2010, 40% of children are born into unwed homes. Okay, now the, the effect of that, and that's what I want you to think about, the effect of that on children, what that says about our value of marriage, all right, is that it needs to be challenged. We as the church need to, need to raise the beauty of marriage as designed by God and encourage people to pursue a, 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 a deep love for the marital relationship. Generally, I think we can say marriage is under attack. And we can't just blame it on government, which is that's the direction a lot of us like to point. Okay, Does the government have policies that are adding to a decreased value and preciousness of marriage? I think the answer is clearly yes. Clearly yes. And I think the church needs to come alongside and say, we need to be light as the people of God. Okay, And we need to uphold the preciousness and value of marriage. Now, here's the question that you need to ask. Is it a sad thing that there is a decreasing value of marriage? 
Okay, we can certainly <clears throat> say that there is an evident decrease in the value of it, but is that necessarily good or bad? Okay, and one secular writer said it this way. He said, <clears throat> and I, I just love this insight, he said, marriage is not the capstone of culture, meaning it's not the high point. It is instead the bedrock on which culture rests. Okay, meaning the whole structure of culture is only strong if the marriages that form that culture are strong. Okay, it's a bedrock. And by God's design, it is foundational to culture. So here's the question that we need to ask. Why is there such a breakdown? Why the prevalent decay? And this has happened in the past in history, and the value of marriage has been recovered. Okay, so it's not that it can't be recovered and that we can't see change. It's just that we tend to be in a downward trend right now. Why is the breakdown and struggle so common? Why is it that we don't value it? How do we recover the value of it? And I think one of the things you need to do is you need to go back to the beginning when God designed marriage. You need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 as we did last week and look at this foundational relationship that was created and ordained by God. And when you look at it, here's what you find. God takes from man a portion, shapes that into a woman, brings her to the man. And what does Adam do? Adam writes poetry. Okay? He sings a song. All right? Most men aren't prone to writing poetry. All right? But this, this beauty of this woman brought to him as God's provision caused him to do what? Genesis 2. He says, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken from man. You get back to the original, you find that this is in poetic form. It's a song that Adam is writing about the beauty of God's plan and the way that God is fulfilling the needs that Adam has as a man and fulfilling the needs of this woman through the bond of marriage. However, as you read into Genesis chapter 3, what do you find? You find trouble comes on the scene. And what is the Word of God telling us? It's telling us that marriage was designed by God to be a blessing to individuals and to families. But sin comes into the picture, and the effect of sin is that it brings tension into the closest human relationship. So that by the time I get to verse 12 of Genesis chapter 3, sin has taken place. Humanity has rebelled against the rightful rule of God. God comes in a redeeming posture. To restore them back into their proper relationship with God. And what does Adam do? Right? Man is the first of the human species, right? The first gender to blame the other person, right? God comes and says, what's happened and why? Adam says, you know, that woman you put in the garden with me, right? So what do you have? Well, how do you think they felt, Eve felt after that? She looked at Adam and said, I just love this man. Right? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. No. What happened? That blame brought tension, and that tension is what tears marriages apart. What is that tension called? That tension the Bible calls sin. It's my natural tendency to be self-centered. So look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2. And let's just begin reading in verse 1. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. I want you to notice how comprehensive this sinful pattern is amongst humanity, therefore amongst all marriages. It says, and as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, I want you to notice what verse 3 says. So it identifies this spirit of disobedience. It's the essence of our sinfulness. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time. Okay, so folks, what is that saying? Every married person and every individual in this room at one time did what? Lived among them at once, gratifying our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, okay? Not, oh, it's, the, it's her problem. Eve is the problem here. No. What is God saying? He's saying to Adam, no. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Okay, so when sin came in and fractured human relationships, the result was that it affected deeply the most foundational relationship that God ever created, the relationship of marriage. So the common problem, the way we are born, contrary to a popular singer theologian, the way we are born is as sinners in need of redeeming grace. I have a natural tendency in my relationships and in my marriage to be self-centered. And what do we tend to do? We tend to gratify our own desires. That's what Paul's saying. We tend to seek our own satisfaction, our own fullness, our own happiness. And quite honestly, most of the time, we don't care or think about how that is impacting and affecting others. So the, the, the thing that tears apart at marriage is a common problem. Why is this important? Tim Keller says this. He says, if our view of marriage is too romantic and too idealistic, what will we do? we will underestimate the influence of sin. We'll, we'll think, oh, we'll get over that, or we'll get past that, or we'll be able to deal with that. It won't be a problem. All right, and if, 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 I, if I live in relationships with an idealistic view that everything, it'll, it'll just be fine. It's not a big deal. Okay, what does that mean? It means I'm not taking into account the seriousness of sin, its effect on marriage, its effect on parental relationships. We need to be on guard, folks. Because all of us have a natural bent, and that bent is for us to move away from God and towards ourselves. When we understand that, what does it do? It frees us from the illusion of looking for Mr. Right or Miss Perfect, right? Because we're measuring, we're just trying to figure out, is this, does this person fit into that model of what I'm looking for? And here's what we really believe. We believe if I find a person who is compatible with me, that will eliminate problems. Okay, well, will compatibility help to decrease the number of problems in your marriage? Yes. Okay, is it wise for you to seek the advice of your parents? I would say that it's not only wise, I believe it's biblical to seek the input and wisdom of your parents and godly Christian friends. As to which direction should I be moving relationally? What do you think about how we're suited for being with each other? But don't do that with thinking that if I marry someone with whom I am completely compatible, that I won't have any problems in my marriage. Okay, I'm sure there are probably many of people in here who right now, if I said, when you got married, did you believe you were compatible? I believe there are many people that could raise their hands. If we furthered the discussion and said, was that myth of compatibility, that illusion that it will protect our relationship from struggles, has that worked out? I think most people would say, you know, we're pretty compatible, but that doesn't mean that we're free from trouble. Okay, compatibility will not erase the consequences of sin in our lives. Okay, and I think it's important that we say that. There's a website. I had never been on it until yesterday. 
Okay, it's called eHarmony.com. I honestly have never been on that website. My wife is sitting there and I said, honey, I'm going on to eHarmony.com, okay? Just because I want to see what kind of their vision statement is, okay? Because I know they, they, they uh, have this list of what they call 29 dimensions of compatibility for lasting and fulfilling relationships. Okay, now if you go through them, here's something that's not acknowledged. The sinfulness of your future partner. Okay, it is assumed that if you're compatible, that you'll be fine. And folks, I don't want to be a myth buster, but that's one I want to bust for you. Okay, compatibility is a good thing to seek after. It is not the solution to human sinfulness. Okay, marriage, relationships will test you. They'll draw things out of you that will surprise you. Attitudes and actions that maybe in many cases we thought we were not really capable of. As I say that, I do want to say this. The Bible does encourage one area of compatibility. Here's what it says. If you're a Christian, marry someone who is in the Lord. Okay? Because that compatibility with someone who has experienced the overwhelming grace of God, the forgiving grace of God, will give you a tremendously better shot at a successful relationship. Okay? So if you're a believer, God's plan, God's clear design and directive for you is marry in the Lord someone who loves Christ more than they love you. And you will find that to be a powerful uh, key to unity and joy in your marriage. And see, the reality is that day-to-day marriage and relationships are a challenge. Brokenness causes many of us to devalue marriage. It's demanding, it will test you, and it is not perfected in the early days of your marriage. Most people are at some level surprised that they could feel the way they feel towards someone that they love more than any other person on the planet. I'm not doubting the love. I'm just saying that sometimes we can feel in certain ways frustrated, hurt, wounded in the context of this closest relationship that God ever gave to man, the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. And that means that sometimes for years, even decades, you'll be working it out. You'll be growing together. That's the design of God. Two sinners who have a natural bent toward selfishness called by the Spirit to live in sacrificial love for the benefit of each other and for the good of their children. All right? That's the call. That's the design of God. So the question I want to answer this morning is this. Is there hope? If the human condition is so decidedly broken, all right, if we have such a strong bent away from God's plan and design is there hope if the trends are so strong if the current of 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 society pulls so strongly at the legs of humanity is it possible for anyone to stand okay and i want to assure you this morning okay that if we take into account the directives of god's word and i'm just going to give you this morning three basic principles that i think will give you hope will encourage you to say you know what A future marriage in my life can be a good thing. Or my current marriage can, by the grace of God, grow and become something that God wants it to be. Even if I've been in that relationship for 30 years, it can grow. And we can experience progress. And I believe there are three reasons that I'm just going to lay these out for you this morning. The gospel of God, 
the Word of God, and forgiveness. Okay, the Gospel of God, the Word of God, and forgiveness are three reasons why every Christian should be hope-filled in their relationships, particularly in the relationship of marriage. First of all, let's look at this thought. Hope in the gospel is present when we continue to believe it. Okay, hope in the gospel is present when we continue to believe it. Let me, let me just give this as a clarification. The question I'm asking you is not, can you look back to a time in your life when you prayed a prayer? Okay, the question I'm asking you is today, are you believing in the life-changing power of the blood of Christ to transform you from grace to grace? So that the gospel is not simply this thing that one encounters at a point in their life affected by it then. No, it is something that we encounter again and again and again. And we continue to do what? Believe, believe, believe. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 says. So what do we do? We come to Jesus Christ by faith. Some point along the way, that faith germinates and it results in a new birth, the intervention of God that changes our lives and makes us fit for marriage, makes us fit for Christian relationships. Ephesians 2 and verse 4, after giving us this strong picture that like the rest, we were objects of wrath. Look at verse 4. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sin. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. So what does the gospel do? The gospel, in an amazing way, frees us from our natural tendency of selfishness. It, it, it breaks the bondage of sin. Does it mean we're totally free from it? No. But it does mean that we don't have to live in the bondage of it anymore. All right, in the gospel, what has God done? God has come in transforming power to change us. And I love these words. We were objects of wrath, just like the rest. Verse 4, but God, rich in mercy, has changed us. And that's the, that's the testimony of every true believer. Verse 5, it says this, He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead unresponsive in our sin, not awake to righteousness, not desiring righteousness. God awakens us, converts us, and gives us the gift of faith to trust Him for the rest of our lives. That's the good news of the gospel. And that gospel is what gives us hope as we continue to believe it. It changes us as we respond in faith. So verse 8 says this, it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now folks, here's what I want you to, to think about. Okay, this faith that saves brings you into a new relationship, it changes you in a new relationship with God. And what is it? It's not of works so that no one can boast. So what does the gospel do? And why is it so powerful for marriage? The gospel changes you in a way that you cannot take credit for the change that has come. Okay, and what does that do? That makes you humble. It kills pride. 
Why? I can't stand in front of the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for helping me to complete my life. No, at the foot of the cross, I have to say, I am the sinner for whom you died. And that gospel that brings about a new heart, regeneration, brings deep humility. Why? Because the changes that begin to flow out of a converted life aren't owing to human efforts. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, I got here by my effort. Well, if you did, you're not where God wants you to be. The gospel of God changes us. And marriage is a place where our Christian character will be shaped. It is a place where we can grow. It's one of the purposes that God has in bringing us to this unbreakable, permanent relationship. He designs for you to hang into it together, even when things are difficult. He doesn't say, if you're not getting along, just break it. No, he says, you stay together. Practice Christ-like love. Live the gospel. Let it change you. Okay, and because of the gospel of God, we have hope, folks. So if you've never trusted Christ and you've been, you've been wrestling with, with tendencies and you can't break free from the patterns of, of anger and frustration, whatever it is that's destroying relationships and destroying your home, flee to God. In the gospel, He will change you. He will awaken you from sleep spiritually and make you alive to righteousness. That's good news. There is hope in the gospel when we continue to believe it A through Z. Not A through C. It's not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the fullness of the Christian life. And God wants us to daily just confess gratitude and thanks to Him. It's what we do in song, isn't it? To give thanks to God for the gospel that has changed us. Secondly, there's hope in God's truth when we treasure it. Now, here's what I want just to say, broadly speaking, from Ephesians 4 through 5. Okay? From Ephesians 4 through 5, there is a boatload of wisdom for relationships, particularly for marriage. Uh, an amazing amount of truths that if you take them and by the Spirit as a believer in the gospel, you begin to put them into practice, you will find that that word begins to sanctify you. It begins to change your emotions, change your heart, change your attitudes, change your actions. Okay, because it is God's direction for change. And I want to say it this way, hoping God's truth will change us when we treasure it. Because what is the Bible? What is the Bible? And 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says this. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean? The Bible is God-breathed. It is the very words of God for life. People say, I just wish God would tell me. Well, maybe he already has. All Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good thing. And I would argue this. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a hard thing. What does the Word of God do? It equips you to live in that relationship in a way that glorifies and honors God. So when I take this truth of God's Word, this potent instruction for human relationships, family, work, government, church. When I, when I take that Word of God that speaks into the various dimensions of human experience, what happens? It begins to change us. Because it is meant by God to be a, a manual for living. 
It's truth that is to direct and redirect and correct and challenge and change us. As we put it into practice. Genesis 2.24 tells us that God called man and woman to leave their mother and father, to cleave to each other, and to become one flesh. Marriage in that sense is what? It is planned by God, and it is made by God. All right, that's what we learn from Scripture. And then as you read through the rest of Scripture, you begin to find through example and direct teaching ways that the Word of God wants to modify and reshape your marriage relationship. And as you yield to that truth, you will find that it becomes an incredible blessing in your life. Let's see, here's something I think we can say about marriage. Marriage is complicated. It's not impossible, but it's complicated. Why? Because it is the closest human experience and relationship. And when you add children into it, and when the struggles of life into it, what happens? It gets complicated. It's difficult. I need direction and help. So do you. About a year and a half ago, I found a great deal on a Troy-built power washer. Okay, it has a 13 horsepower Honda motor on it. Okay, and when the guy told me how much he wanted for it, I said, you know what it's worth, right? Because it's got this thing about taking something from someone and they don't really know what it's worth and I'm going to hide that I really know what it's worth and buy it from them for less than it's worth. Got a problem with that. So I said, you know what this is worth, right? He said, yes, I just need it out here, I'm moving. So I got this amazing piece of equipment for about 25% of the original price, okay, along with all the accessories that went with it. And I'm happy. I got this thing in my garage from November through the next spring, and spring comes, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go power wash me something, right? <laughs> so I get this thing out, and I, I can't, I'm seriously, man, Honda motors are the best, okay? So I can't wait to hear this Honda motor do what? Purr, Right? <laughs> So I'm out there, I get everything all set up, and I, I am pulling away, pulling away. And, 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 and what am I, I'm becoming exasperated with my purchase, because it won't start. Okay, and what am I thinking? I'm thinking I got taken, right? And my joy and my hope was what? It was devastated and shattered. So you know what I did? I called a friend who has mechanical ability, okay, more than I have. I've got some, but he's got a lot more. And here's what he said to me. He said, does it have a shut-off valve? on the fuel line? I said, that's a really good question. <laughs> and at that moment, what did I think to myself? I said, that's what that manual is for, right? That's tips for starting. Okay? Open, put fuel in it and open the fuel valve. And here's an amazing thing that happens. When you pull an engine that has an open fuel valve, guess what? It starts. Okay? Now, I... What I experienced frustration, emotional breakdown. I thought I got taken. I thought I had such a deal. And I was, I was upset. I could have resolved my problem by what? Open the manual. Okay? Read the instructions, men. Okay? And guess what? It worked. Okay? The Word of God is a manual for life. If you ignore it, it will lead to frustration. You wonder why things aren't going the way you want them to go. Why it isn't what you expected it to be. Why it's quiet when you wanted it to purr. The same thing is true for marriage. We get a little ways into it. What do we start thinking? Did I get taken? Right? This isn't what I expected and we experience frustration. And when our expectations are frustrated, what do we do? 
We don't ask ourselves, where did I go wrong? We don't have a natural tendency to say, honey, there's something about how I'm relating to you that is wrong. And it's causing frustration in my life. Now, what's our natural tendency? The woman you gave me. Right? It's, it's, it's where we tend to point. And what we really need to do, go to the manual. Men, find out how to love your wife like Christ loves the church. And when you do that, amazing, not perfectly, but amazing things will happen as we consult this powerful book that God has given us. Now, I said to you, it is not enough that I simply have the manual, the Word of God. Okay? I must learn to treasure it. There's a difference between knowing and memorizing and quoting the Word of God and treasuring the Word of God. Okay? And this is crucial that you understand this. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2 says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates day and night. Therefore, he's like a tree planted beside rivers of water. His leaf doesn't wither when drought comes. Whatever he does prospers. Okay, why? Because he is, and here's the key, he is, he is rejecting false counsel, the, the trends and patterns and thinking of the world you live in. Put that aside, reject it, it's false. And delight in the law of the Lord. And treasure it, love it. He delights in it. He, he loves what God says, which means what? He doesn't just admire it. He imitates it. He lives it out. James 1.22 gives the warning. Don't merely listen to the Word of God. Do what it says. In Colossians 1, right before a discussion on marriage, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, let it come in and change you. Treasure it and it will have a, a, an amazing effect on your life. So please understand, it's not enough to know it. I must be listening by the Spirit to what God is saying and ask for wisdom in how this applies to specific areas in my life. Treasuring always means obeying. Okay, and you will have hope for growth and strength in your marriage and relationships when you put the truth of God's Word into practice. Okay, it is an amazing guide for troubled times. Treasuring always means obeying. Husbands and wives, do this and you will give your children the gift that they deserve and the gift that God gave them. He gave them you. He wants to change you by His Word, applied by the power of the Spirit of God, so that they have the best gift that God could ever give. Mom and dad who are united. Singles, the biblical truth will free you from stereotypes. Most of the stereotypes about singles are negative. You know what the Bible says? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Bible will free you from the negative stereotype because what it says is that, is that marriage is not ultimate, but that your relationship with Jesus Christ is what matters the most. And that's true for everyone. It's true for every one of us. Marriage is, John Piper says in his recent book, it is after all temporary. Right? In heaven, there's not marriage or given in marriage. You will be so satisfied that all of the needs that are part of your relational marriage will no longer be necessary. That's how satisfying Jesus is. Okay? That, he is ultimate. So as you ponder these truths, 
as a single person, realize that your walk with Christ, lived in an undistracted way, is the greatest treasure that you could have. And if you're marriage-minded, all right, you're seeking a mate, you're in process of preparing for that, find someone who believes that the Word of God is crucial and who believes that their sin can only be remedied by the powerful good news of the gospel of Christ. And the last thought I want to leave you with this morning is this. And this moves us to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Ephesians 4 and verse 32. The last cause for hope in our marriages and relationships is forgiveness when we practice it. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Now, what is Paul doing here? Here's what Paul's doing. Paul's giving what I would like to call a replacement theology, okay? If you look at verse 31 of chapter 4, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, with, along with every form of malice, okay? And replace that with what? With kindness that forgives, okay? Be kind, forgive each other, like God in Christ forgive you. How does Christ forgive us? How does Christ forgive us? He takes our rebellion. And the wrath of God that it deserves upon himself on Calvary's cross. That's what he does. He bears the consequence of our sin. He bears the wrath of God. And remember this, folks, from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. What does it say? It says, we were all objects of wrath, just as the rest. So what is Jesus? Jesus is the model for forgiveness. Do what he did. Let it go. Forgive that individual. Forgive your mate. Don't hold them in bondage to it. And then Christ is also what? He is the motive for forgiveness. As he forgave you, so you should forgive one another. Now, in forgiveness, what happens? In forgiveness, what happens is this. An offense or injury that has hurt us sparks in us a negative attitude towards an individual. Okay? Now, we have a choice. We can let that person pay for what they've done to us or we can release them from it. All right, in the gospel, what does Jesus Christ do? He takes the wrath of God that is directed towards me personally. What does he do? He jumps in between and takes the wrath of God that I deserve. Right? And he bears it away. That's what forgiveness is. It is that the, 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 the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses away our sin. And Colossians says it in this way. It says that on the cross, Jesus Christ took the list of indictments that was against us. All of the sins, all the flaws, all the weaknesses and failures in my life, all listed. What did he do? He took it and he, in his flesh, nailed it to the cross. That's what forgiveness does. It takes it and it forgives it. It lets it go. So in Christ, God has forgiven us all of our sins. And here's what he said to us. He says to us, he says, forgive each other in that same kind of way. All right, don't make each other pay. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. One of my favorite pictures of the gospel from Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. 
Here's a guy who has shamed his dad, who has squandered his inheritance, and when he finally hits bottom and has nothing left, no options, no alternatives, what does he do? He goes home. How would you feel? Dad? Squandered? Disrespected? Everything that dad had ever done for him, and now he's coming home. Here's what the Bible says. It says, while the son was a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and said, he's going to pay. No. What did he do? He ran to him. Totally unexpected. He ran to him. And folks, that is what Jesus Christ in the cross does. We didn't go to him. We didn't remedy our problem and then get right with God. He came and sought us through the cross. And and what I love is this text uses the same word, verse 32 of chapter 4. It says, be kind and compassionate, forgiving. When the father saw the son a long way off, the rebel who had wounded his dad deeply, when he saw a long way off, what happened? His heart wasn't filled with rage. Why? Here's what I believe. He had probably already forgiven him. He was waiting for a restoration, not for a judgment day. The son coming back said what? He's repented. He's turned. He's made that move. And when the father sees him, he's filled with kindness, compassion, and he runs. And the son who expects to be flogged and grovel as a servant of his father is restored to the position of a son. That's amazing grace. That's the kind of love and grace that we need in our marriages, isn't it? Because the truth is that we all let each other down. Not only in marriage, but in other relationships. We all let each other down. And we need to practice the grace of forgiveness and love each other in the way that God desires for us to love each other. Forgiveness is the removal of judgment that people deserve and is the expression of kindness and love that restores and frees the children of God and that makes for strong, healthy, powerful marriages. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Be imitators, therefore, of God, as dearly loved children. So what's happening here? If you are loved by God, you know the gospel of grace, you know what it is to be forgiven, as dearly loved children, do what? Notice what he says. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does that mean, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God? Here's what I believe it means. That when we in our relationships, particularly in the relationship of our marriage, proximity and closeness and permanence, when we in that setting live in a forgiving way with a fallen person, it pleases God. When we offer the sacrifice of forgiveness to each other when it is needed, what does it do? It rises up as a fragrant offering, pleasing. It brings a smile to the face of God because then we are living like His Son, Jesus. Forgiveness needs to move powerfully in our lives because it is what gives us hope of a long life together. Without it, we attack 
and fall apart. And forgiveness is the clearest expression of God's love that we can give to our children. What is God's love? It's when I deserved wrath, He forgave me. He took the consequence of my sin and changed my life. So this morning, I ask you this question in conclusion. Is there hope? Is there hope? Do you really feel hopeful about your marriage and about the prospect of marriage? If you believe the gospel, you should have hope. If you treasure God's word, you should have hope. And if you practice Christ-like forgiveness, you should be a person of hope. That your home can become something that it has never been before. It can amaze. It can astonish because of the grace of God. This morning, my aim is this. I want to encourage you to live a life of love guided by the gospel, the truth, and forgiveness. Cultivating relationships that ultimately, in the context of our homes, are the greatest gift that we can give to our children. May God help us. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, the beginning of hope is the new birth. That's where it all starts. When you go to God and you say, God, I am an object of wrath. I am self-centered. Forgive me. Cleanse me with the blood of Christ. And change me for your glory. Put your life into the hands of God. And let him change your life forever. Let's bow and pray.